All right, hey, we're in the final week of our series, What Happens After You Believe, right? So what's next? And I was talking to Judy Bacon. She's our um, SDMI chair. For those of you who don't like Ackerman, she's kind of in charge of our adult discipleship programs and, and how we, we learn the Bible and, and our classes and our small groups and so forth. Um, and she was asking me as we started looking at this Carmichael project. Um, we were all ready to go this past Friday, and then I had a meeting with the school. They weren't ready. Right? And, and, I, and I was sitting there and I was, I was beaming, right? And I was trying to let the beams not come out into the room, you know? And, um, and, and, I, and because I know we were ready. We were totally ready. They weren't ready for us. So I was like, but I didn't do that. I, I just said, I'll pray for you guys. Um, but anyways, Judy's asking me, and you can imagine this Carmichael thing is on my mind a lot right now. Um, she's asked me, are we going to try to meet all their needs? <laughs> and I thought, well, no, that's, that's silly, Judy. How are we going to meet all of their needs? I said, that, that's impossible. We're just supplementing their needs. And this whole week, God hasn't let me forget that idiotic statement. That has been on my mind. I think God showed me some passages. I, I, I struggled with it. I, I mean, I was like, God, are you, are you serious? Are we gonna go? Oh, man. Here's where God took me. This is, this is Paul's letter to the church of uh, Philippi. Um, this is not where we're going to hang out, but, uh, but this is just kind of what I want to do is kick off this uh, Philippians 2, or excuse me, 4, verse 12. It says, I know this is Paul. Okay. I know what it is to be in need. And he's writing a letter to the church at Philippi. Okay. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. So he's experienced both sides of life. I've learned the secret of being content in every, any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So Paul's given thanks for them uh, again. They, they've helped him in the past. They're helping him again. Um, and even though, even though he makes very, very clear that he's at a point in his life where their gifts are what I call gravy, right? It, it's just everything's been taken care of, and now it's just gravy. It's just the good stuff. No effort. It's just, it's just blessings flowing in, right, at that point. And um, that, that's the life that he was living right now. He didn't need anything. He makes that very clear. He says, man, I am content. Um, Paul didn't need their gifts. And in 13, verse 13, he sums up why he doesn't need their gifts. It says this in 13 and 14. I can do this all of this, everything that God's called me to do, through him, Christ, who gives me strength. And very few people add on this, this, this lad, the, 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 sec, the verse right after that. They kind of stay right at that point. Um, Paul wasn't always like this. Paul, at one point in his life, was deeply struggling. I mean, can you imagine being a Pharisee, the, the upper level of the Pharisees, tribe of the Benjamin? He, I mean, he was just the, the upper echelon of the Jewish society. And historians tell us more than likely, in order, well, first of all, in order to be a Pharisee, which he was, he had to be married. Do you ever hear about Paul's wife? No, you don't hear about Paul's wife. Most authorities, theologians, historians believe that he was in fact married, but when he accepted Christ, his wife decided, no. No, I'm, I'm not going to give up everything that I have. My position, nope, not going to happen. Paul's family left him. I don't know if he had kids. I, we, we don't know that. Um, Paul understands what it is to lose something um, for the gospel. But he says this, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. So we were very, very clear from the very beginning, Paul wasn't always content. He didn't always master this secret. There was a time in his life when he was struggling deeply. I'm going to continue in verse 15. It says, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. 
Verses 16 and 17. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So he, you see, he's, he's at a point in his life now where we kind of all would love to be, where we don't need anything, right? We're just content. Birthdays, I don't need anything. Christmas, don't need a thing. Let's just hang out and have a good time together, right? I'm just, he, that's at this point, but he's making very clear he was once at a point where he had some serious needs. And these people came to his rescue, Several times, as we're going to find out, they, they came to his rescue. It says, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent aid to me more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. Now, that sounds awfully mean. <laughs> it's like, what? What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Their generosity had made Paul glad, but not for his own sake, for their sakes. See, Paul was helping them to see that when they were giving gifts to him, and when you give gifts to anybody in need, you're actually giving gifts to your heavenly father, right? You're, you, are, you are a living sacrifice, exactly what Paul talks about in, in, in his letter to the Romans. You are living sacrifices, but instead of laying here and taking a nap on the altar or dying or whatever, he says, get up off the altar and go make a difference in your world. Be a living sacrifice, Listen to this, this is in verse 18 and 19. It says, I have received full payment, right? More than enough. I'm amply supplied. Now that I've received gifts from Epaphroditus, the gifts you sent. And then verse 18, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. The joy of his gift is not in what it did for him, but what it did for them. And again, it's not that he didn't value their gifts, but his greatest joy was the fact that the love that prompted the gift was really pleasing to God. That's what caught Paul's attention, that they had, they weren't doing it for Paul, they were, they were doing it because they loved God, and God recognized that incredible thing. And then Paul says this in verse 19, says, and my God will meet all your needs. He's met all my needs. I'm at a point where I don't have needs anymore. But I think he's very explicitly saying, you might not be at the place I'm at. And you might be at a point where, where you need, you need, not want, but, but you need. And you might not have neighbors too. They're, they're not wanting, they're, they're needing um, something. And Paul concludes, my God met all of my needs and he'll meet all of your needs too. I think I was wrong when I said no to Judy Bacon. Can we meet all of their needs? No. No, we can't. Can God meet all of their needs? Yeah, yeah, he can. Through, and well, this is very careful to watch this, through the riches of his son, Jesus Christ. Okay? And all those riches that were in Jesus Christ it now is where? In his church, Right? So God has decided through his son, Jesus Christ, that he would pour out into his church, he would give his life for his church, and then his church would go and continue the life that Jesus was living until Christ returns. So I've been praying. What part can we play in this project? What part will we play? What part will we play when God decides to meet all of their needs? through us and this is what i felt god saying very very clearly he says don't don't talk about supplementing their needs i'm not about supplementing people's needs that's not what i'm about i meet all the people's needs that's what i do 
And I want you to think bigger there, Pastor Jerry. I, don't, I, I need you to see past your little congregation there on Keene Road. My vision is so much bigger than your congregation on King Road. I just want to stop and pray. If you're a guest with us this morning, this is kind of what we do. I just kind of introduce a topic, and then I deliberately just go sit down, um, and I give God's Spirit time to, to work you all over. <laughs> That's kind of, I'm just being honest. Um, it's like I, I just felt at a certain point God was saying, you know, you talk too much up there. You need to stop talking and let me speak for a little while. And, and, and he does that through singing. He does that through a lot of different things. Um, but what we're going to do right now, I just want a, a, a time of prayer. And I, and I say this every time. I, I know people, you've come into this building and you have burdens. You have, you, God's Spirit has placed people on your mind. And you've walked into here thinking, this is the place where I need to lift up my friend. This is, and, and you haven't, that, that's been on your mind. And then Pastor Jerry starts talking about all this other stuff. Here's what I want you to hear. During this time of prayer, I want you to focus on what God's calling you to do. If he's calling you to pray for your neighbor, forget Carmichael for just a little while. Just lay it off to the side. God didn't forget about it. He'll bring it back to you, you know, or I'll do it, you know. But I want you just to focus on the people that you want to pray about, that you feel God's Spirit saying, you know what, um, I want to do something in their lives, but I don't want to do it miraculously. I want to do it through you. I want to build your faith. I want to build their faith. And if I just go and do this, then nobody's faith is built, right? People will go, wow, God's amazing, but what's he going to do tomorrow? But when he works through us, when he works through us, tomorrow continues to grow. When he works through us, everything that we do is, is eternal. It's not just for that moment. And that's the beauty of it. He could come in and just boom, 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 boom. But then what about tomorrow? God needs some clicking. Hey, you know, that's not the way he operates. He loves to work through us. And I just want to stop and pray now. What part will we play? And, I, I, and again, I know there are a lot of things on your mind. And I know we've been talking about this idea. And I don't want to say this flippantly. Um, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Probably the best way to solve your problems is to not focus on them. Maybe select a problem even bigger than yours. <laughs> and it will take your eyes off your problem. Your stub toe, you won't even notice it because you've chopped off your thumb, right? It's kind of the eye. Well, that probably went south. That really didn't work out well. Um, but y'all know what I'm talking about. So let's just stop. Father, we have a lot of needs. There are so many people hurting in our world. Um, and you are right there. You, you've made that so clear in your word that you would never leave or forsake us, that you would be right there when we have been walking away from you. Maybe our face has been turned from you, and we decide that's just dumb, and we turn back to you, and you're always right there. You're, you're, we don't even have to go anywhere. You're always right there. So, Father, this morning... Um, we have, there's a lot of issues in our world, Lord, but there are some bigger ones that you're seeing, Lord, and, and I feel like you're calling this church to, um, to deliberately choose to focus on bigger problems than our own. And Father, you say that when we do this, that you're going to bless us. And I don't think it's going to be in money, and I don't think it's going to be in wealth or possessions. I think it's going to be in restored relationships that will then feed right back into our lives. That, that's the beauty of blessings, Father. I don't think it's possessions. I, I think it's relationships. Broken relationships that get mended. Relationships that never even got to start. They get their start in, in you, Father. Father, as, as we look at Carmichael Middle School, they, 
The issues that these families face are so huge. You didn't call us to fix all their problems. You called us to pay attention to their problems and do whatever we could do we, to offer you what we can offer you, and then you'll make up the difference. So, Father, that's my prayer this morning, that every heart in this room would soften to the point where no matter what kind of barriers they might have put up to this project, that those barriers would be knocked down today. Hearts would be softened. Pockets would get emptied. Wallets would get challenged. Time would be redeemed, maybe. People's lives, maybe we would drop some wasteful time-killing habits and maybe insert Carmichael Middle School into that time slot of the day. Father, help us to live up to what you've called us to. You've called us to be amazing. You've called us to be light in the world. You've called us to go into places of darkness where there are wolves. And we go in as sheep, but you tell us to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That's a lot of, that's a lot of coverage. But Father, you're always right beside us and you give us the right words to say in love. Father, as we tackle the issues of Carmichael Middle School, which are not our issues. But Lord, in the long run, they really are because they're us. And if we ever count them as separate from us, we've made a huge mistake. And Father, forgive us. They are us. We might be a little further down the road for some of these people that we're going to be helping, but we were all once there. And if we forget that, Lord, forgive us. Father, be amazing in this service. I feel funny asking it. That's what you want to do. And you call us to ask for that. So Lord, be amazing in this service. Push through that we would be united as a body to make a difference in this city. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who's already out in front of us. He's been out in front of us the whole time. We think we're going into uncharted waters. We're foolish. God, you're there in front of us all the time. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for being with us here this morning and loving us. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. All right, so I gave God's Spirit time to work on y'all. Can I just send you home now? Or are you, uh, I'm just curious here. I guess all since I prepared it all. All right. Did you know... That the church world, in the church world, that there is a divide. Like, yeah, Pastor Jerry, you're a sharp one. <laughs> but the crazy thing about this divide, it's also in the world. It's not just us. It's, it's the world out there just in general. Um, how best to deal with poverty? That's a huge, huge issue. It's in our politics. It's, it's around the world. Politicians are talking about it. Entertainers, rock stars, you name it. They all want to talk about how we can solve poverty, how we can address all these issues that, that our world is just kind of crumbling under. Um, a guy named uh, Rick Warren came up with what was these guys from Southern California, big old church down there, and he came up with what he considered to be, well, he calls it the peace plan, and it's to address five what he calls global Goliaths, right? Global Goliaths, these are all uh, things that lead to poverty and result from poverty, right up here, spiritual emptiness, egocentric leadership, selfish leadership, we've all been watching that in the banking world the last 10 years, um, extreme poverty, pandemic diseases, illiteracy, and lack of education,
Rick Warren claims that these problems are so large that every attempt by the public and private sector have failed. The only organization, in his opinion, that can tackle these problems because they are so huge and so deep is the network of Christian churches around the world. So he, because it's kind of what he does, he rallies preachers. He, he rallies pastors and churches. And he came up with this plan. It's called the Peace Plan. Plant churches that promote reconciliation. Not that create divisions. Uh, um, equip servant leaders, assist the poor, care for the sick, and educate the next generation. Now, and I love all of this. This is all, this is all fantastic stuff. And most people will look at that and say, yeah, that, those are beautiful things to be involved in. But I, but I promise you, here's what's going to happen. As soon as we get heavily involved in any of this kind of stuff, there's going to be talk. There's going to be talk. There could be talk already going on within our own body right now. But I promise you out there in the community, there is talk already going on whenever we talk about social justice. It just, it just pops up. And they will be saying things. As soon as you start helping the unfortunate, hit that next slide there. This is just three. I mean, there's many other arguments, but they'll start unloading on you. As soon as you find out, oh, you're a part of that church who's going out there and helping the disadvantaged and the struggling people at Carmichael Middle School in the south end of Richland. And they'll say, am I really my brother's keeper? Is that my problem? And, and we who know our Bible, we respond, yes. God made it very clear that we are our brother's keeper. They'll go, well, a desire just doesn't make a right. And this is the big one, right? People get in a certain situation and they say, well, I have a right to a home and I have a right to a, a living wage and I have a right to this and I have a right to that. And there are people say, well, no, 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 no. Those aren't right. Just because you want them doesn't make it a right. You have to earn them. And there's just a, that cold edge, right? You, I earned mine. You got to go ahead and earn yours. Didn't matter that I had a leg up in a lot of different ways and you don't. I had a stable family, and I had a good education, and I had stable community. You know what? When we meet these people, you're not going to find any of that. You're going to find chaos, just utter chaos. And you're just going to go, where do I start? Where do I even start with some of these lives that are just, they're just chaotic. They're not bad. They're just, life, life, life got one over on them, and they just kind of went downhill from there, and they lost hope. Desire doesn't make it right. They're poor for a reason. That's the one you're going to hear, I promise you. And that's two opinions there. One, if you help them, they're going to be poor again in a month because they just don't know how to handle whatever. They, they're just dumb. I mean, you, you will hear this. They're not smart enough to have money. Or, or it's the system's fault and psh, what can we do? That's the system. Anything we do is not going to make any kind of difference because in a month they'll be poor again because of the system. They're poor for a reason. These, these are really hateful. These are, these are just hateful. These, I believe these are just reasons like um, what we talked about uh, last week. This is a, a lot of people who, who have and they don't want to have not. <laughs> That's what this is about. It's not about equality and justice. It's not about being equal or fair. It's about making sure that I get mine. Okay? That, that bottom line. And as we talk about helping the poor and as we talk about helping disadvantaged people, there will be people, there, I promise you, there will be people who will trot out this passage from Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Don't give dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. And if you do, they may trample them under your, their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, I got to be honest with you. 
I've been kind of leading up to this. Um, this whole Carmichael thing, you are going to be, there's going to be a little bit of shock, I think, for a lot of people, because you're going to meet these people. You're going to meet selfish and insensitive people. You're going to meet moral train wrecks who are doing horrible things in their lives, but you're still going to love them, and you're still going to give without condition. You're going to meet intellectual snobs, and they're just going to kind of look down their nose at us. Oh, you believe in fairy tales, you blah, 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 blah. Cynical mockery. You're going to meet some mean and nasty people. And I'm not talking about the kids. I'm talking about their families, their parents, and, and this whole community. There are people in this community, don't get me wrong, there are people in this community who love Jesus. They want to help these people. They want to help Carmichael. Um, but there, I, I promise you, there are people in this community who do not like the church, who do not like this idea that we're helping these people because they say, well, not my brother's keeper. Desire doesn't make it right, right? They're going to end up poor again anyway. What, why, why, are you doing, why are you doing all this stuff? Um, you need to be aware. This will be a lot of the reaction from a lot of folks in community. There will be letters in the, to the editor in the newspaper. There will be quiet talk. The problem with this passage... Hit that next slide there. I mean, I, I look at all those things and all those people and all those problems and all that chaos that we're going to be deliberately putting ourselves in the midst of. Um, and, I, and I look at this passage, and, and this is where I, where I had to go. I, I thought, well, well how, can, how, will, how will this church interface with all of that? Right? And, and, I, and I thought, Lord, take, there's, there's something wrong with this passage. There's something wrong. We're not reading this correctly. If somebody has the guts to pull this out and throw it in your face because you're helping people. And I thought, man, there's something that we're not getting about this passage. I spent this week just digging into this, this crazy different passage. There's not a whole lot of information on it. There's only one place. It's only in Matthew. And I want you to watch very clear, carefully where it's in Matthew. We're going to get to that in just a minute. All right? Again, the problem with this passage, it seems to demand an exclusiveness, which is the exact opposite of the Christian marriage, uh, the Christian message. Would you not agree with that? That is not the Christian message. And a lot of you are thinking, well, there's got to be some explanation because that sounds mean and ugly. That sounds judgmental. Guess where Matthew put it? Right in the section on judging others. Go ahead, take a look at chapter 7 in your Bibles, and you'll go, wow, he tacked that right on to the end of don't judge others. There's a reason he tacked it on right there. And it's not that you need to be in judgment of these other people, by the way. That's a misreading, right? So let's kind of dig into this just a little bit. Um, the, again, the exclusiveness, right? The idea that this is an exclusive passage, I mean, just falls apart. Again, if you look at the whole chapter, chapter 7, I'm going to just kind of flip this over to chapter 7. The entire chapter 7 is devoted to not arguments and discussions on the beauty or intricacies of Jesus or his commandments or his teachings. The entire chapter 7 is entirely devoted to telling us that the fruits of our faith are more important than the propositions that we believe. Y'all kind of cut that. I read a whole bunch of stuff that are on my notes here. What we do to the people out there and to God is probably in the long run far more important than the proposition that we agree to. Yes, I agree that God is the son of Jesus. Jesus is the son of God, and, and yes, I intellectually agree to the fact that he died for me, and okay, that's good. It's like, no, no, just, that, that's, no that's not the way it works. Let me, let me watch how Matthew organize, organizes chapter 7. The very first part of chapter 7, if you're looking in your Bibles, check this out. He's talking about judging other people. 
And then right there on the end, he tacks on this crazy passage. Don't give to dogs what is sacred and don't cast your pearls before swine. It's a Hebrew parallelism. They both are kind of driving at the same idea. It's not two separate ideas. It's that one idea. And you just look at this. So we're, we, we say, don't judge. Then the very next section is seek, ask, seek, and knock. He's, he's talking to believers. And he's saying that you're all going to reach a crossroads, a decision. And you're going to have to make a decision. Are you going to live for me or are you going to live for the world? Are you going to live for my kingdom or are you going to build your own kingdom? And as you ask and seek and knock, I will be there and I will answer you and I will provide a way for you. But when you hear my voice and I show you the way, you're going to quickly recognize that there's a narrow way and a wide way. There's my way and there's the world's way. And you keep talking, you keep reading, and you find out the very next section is about true and false prophets. And what does it say about true and false prophets? How can you tell the difference? Not by what they believe, not by how much they've memorized, but by the fruit of their life, by the good things that they've done for other people. They could be intellectual morons, but in God's kingdom and in God's economy, they're at the top of the heap. The very next section, true and false disciples. How can you tell a true and false disciple, right? Some of them are doing good things under false pretense. It's all about them. Like they got the message, like, okay, what I do is important, but then it became all about them. It was all about their income and about their kingdom, and they were, they were using works to drive people toward them. Like the whole chapter, and at the very end, he says, which are you going to be? Which are you going to build your life on? Is it going to be on building your kingdom? Or is it going to be built on my kingdom in which I build up people around you? And if this is all true, then this statement isn't a statement of exclusiveness. Hit that next slide there. It's a statement of the practical difficulty of communication, which meets every one of us in every age. How do you share Christ and all the intricacies of his beautiful message with somebody who life has so messed up, they literally cannot hear you talk. They can only see you act. You can talk all the beautiful stuff and the, all the prophets, and you can talk about how the New Testament flowing out of the old, you, all that kind of stuff. <sighs> to these people who have been so broken by the world, our message of love is going to be foolishness. They're going to reject it because in their life, the message of the church, the message of love was a, got perverted somehow, and they got hurt. And so there's going to be a massive amount of pushback as we do these things for these people. So the point of this passage, what do we do with these people? What do we do with somebody? What, do, what does a Christian do with somebody who is so broken that they kind of hate you and they hate the God that you want to share? What do, you, what do you do? Do you continue to argue with them? That seems kind of counterproductive <laughs> when every word out of your mouth just makes them matter and matter. You ever have a conversation with your spouse that way? It's like, shut up. <laughs> it's time to shut up. Are these people to be abandoned as hopeless? Is the Christian message simply to be withdrawn from people like that? Something has to happen to these people before they can learn the truth. They have, to, they, they have to experience something that counters the experiences that they've had so far with either the world or the church. Something has to be so amazing that they go, okay, I've miscalculated. I, I, I think I was wrong on this. Um, let's, let's revisit this. 
If you come at folks who are in a really difficult place, a really difficult place, and you offer them a prayer, you offer them a, even a Bible. Hit that next slide. Can I, can I show you what will more than likely happen? Right? They're going to grab your Bible. They're going to throw it on the ground and trample on it, and then they're going to turn and beat you up. They didn't need the Bible. They, they needed food. They needed a place to stay. Prayer was fine, but it needed to be back up with some action, or the prayer was empty. It was just words, empty words, and they turn on us. This is what this passage is talking about. So what can Richland Church of the Nazarene do in the face of such overwhelming issues of poverty and possibly overwhelming opposition? What are we to do? Here's what Jesus showed me. Feeding of the 5,000, I'm going to tack on the feeding of the 4,000 because that, I think, is the key to the feeding of the 5,000, all right? So we call it the miracle of the loaves and the fish. It's one of the handful of miracles. It's in all four Gospels, the feeding of 5,000. The feeding of 4,000 is only in Mark and Matthew. But the feeding of 5,000, all four of them, and basically what's going on is Jesus is teaching them, the crowd, a crowd has gathered, and um, as you look at the passage, they have traveled probably um, max of about 9 to 10 miles. Some of them are much closer, but, but quite a few of them had traveled uh, an entire day's walk. Maybe if you're a quick walker, you know, it's uh, six, uh, six hours, uh, two miles per hour, something like that. Maybe you're there in five, six hours. Um, Teaching the multitude, they'd all come out because he'd been healing people, he'd been healing demons. And let me just say a word about that very quickly. Um, you read a lot, of, uh, a lot of articles talking about there were a lot of miracles going on at that time. Um, what's really going on is, is they, they, you kind of, kind of imagine this for a moment. If you truly believe that your illness was related to demon possession... Right? And if somebody comes along and, and makes you believe that they're... And, and again, I'm not saying that, that Jesus is faking anything of this. But we do have this idea that, that, the, that, that in their minds, their illnesses were related to demon possession. And so that's what Jesus addressed, the demon possession. Now, I believe actually, factually, that is true. I believe that all of our evils in this world, there is a little bit of evil influence in that. But in the practical day-to-day, -day, they... Um, there was just that incredibly tight connection that my illness is not due to the fact that um, I don't eat veggies, right? It's not related to the fact that, that, that I'm, I'm overweight or I'm this or I'm that or anything. It's, it's all related to demons. And so what, how does Jesus address it? He addresses it at the demon level. And they respond and they're healed. That's not to negate the fact that there is demonic activity. But it is saying that there's a little bit more to this when we read about these miracles and these healings that, I mean, in, in Acts, you read about quite a few people who they were doing some pretty wild things. And, and, and writers later on would say, yes, they were doing miracles. But then the early church fathers came and said, yeah, they were doing what any ordinary person could do if they could trick them. And that's really what was going on with a lot of these other things going on. They were false prophets and they were false disciples. They were doing things for themselves. Sidetracked there, radically sidetracked. Feeding the 5,000. So he's feeding the multitudes, telling them about the kingdom of God that's breaking into the world. The crowd had gathered, walked a long way. We pick up the action in verse 15. Chapter 14, verse 15, it says, As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. 
Now you understand later in the passage we find out that there were 5,000 men, not counting children and women. Okay, so there's quite a crowd. If you can picture, I think, an NBA arena, maybe 10 to 15,000, maybe 12,000. It's a big, big crowd. We only have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Jesus replied, bring them here to me, he said, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. In verse 20 and 21, they all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 besides women and children. I forgot I had added that in. So, there are some people who will look at this miracle and they will look at a lot of miracles and they will just say, yep, it's a miracle. Don't need any explanation. It's what God does. There are other people who will look at these miracles and I don't want to and I don't think God has any issue with this second group of people. They look at some of these and they go, I, you know, that guy... I got to think about this one for a minute. So hold, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's, let's just kind of work through this, right? And, and there are quite a few theologians who look at this, this feeding and think, well, gosh, look, the temptations of Jesus, right? That was one of the temptations that he would give them loaves of bread, turn the stones into bread, and everybody would be happy. And is this what he's doing right here? So there are people who, who kind of struggle with this. So there have been alternate explanations. So I'm, I want to tell you right now, if you believe that, that, that that was a physical miracle, that those, those loaves and those fish multiplied by the power of God, then absolutely yes. If you believe that there might have been something more natural going on that might even be more miraculous than that, it's okay. Nobody will, nobody will make fun of you. You're not negating the Bible. You're just looking at it critically. And I believe that God meets questioners halfway all the time. And we don't need to tell people, no, this is what you're supposed to do. God's spirit does a really good job of that. And we just need to shut up. I've, I've said that too many times. This is really, hey, come to church and be told to shut up. So there is another way that we can approach the miracles of Jesus. But no matter how we approach the miracles of Jesus, please keep this in mind. Um, we must never be content to regard them as something that happened once. We have to regard them as something that happens. Now, it might not happen exactly as it did, but there, was, there will be some aspect of what Jesus did miraculously as a son of God. There will be some aspect of that, and, I, and at what level, I do not know, that should be continuing to action and it should be continuing to happen in the life of the church. Okay, you got that. So no matter how we look at this, it's got to be true today. It's, it's got to be true even to today. So there is another explanation. And it all kind of keys around a couple different things. The first part of it is the word basket. You all see where I highlighted that there were 12 basketfuls, right? A Jewish person, they had a, a, a basket right here. It was called the Kephonis, Kephonis, whatever it's called. Um, and every Jewish man would carry it. And, in, in, and it was very important because they had dietary laws, very strict dietary laws. And their part of the world had become very Hellenized. They'd become very Greek, right? So no matter where they went, they were more than likely not going to be able to have their dietary restrictions paid attention to. So what did they do? They would carry their meals, 
Because they could not count on being somewhere and then getting hungry and being able to have the food that the meat didn't touch, the, the, you know, all, all their dietary laws. So every, every, every good Jewish person, they would have this little basket, and kind of a narrow mouth, and it would kind of bull. And, and, and in early church writings and church historians, they have all these recordings of people making fun of the Jewish people because of their basket, right? So it was, it was a big deal, this, this basket that they carried, right? So again, it's been a long trip. If you were walking 10 miles and if you were a Jewish person and you brought your family, you would have had one or two of these baskets filled with food for your family. So you got food for your family. Maybe, and I, I'm, just, I'm just throwing this out. I read this and I thought, oh, that can't be. They're going to be so mad if I explain, if I put out that explanation. But then I started looking around and this explanation is, is, is not just one person's opinion. Um, quite possibly, if you can picture this, crowd of people, it's a meal time. You're there with your family, you're selfish. People all around you, what are you going to do with, your kids are right here. And there's a bunch of people that maybe they don't have the basket. They, weren't, they didn't come with somebody with a basket. What, what, dads, what's your first impulse? Come on now. I'm going to take care of my family. I'm going to take care of my own. And so I think everybody in the crowd noticed, man, man it's, I don't know, Jewish dinner time. <laughs> like, what, what do I do? If I bust this thing out, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to share it. So Jesus, I just, just, and I don't know if it happened this way, but I, I love visual. Little boy comes up. You can have mine. Here was my food for today. And if you're a man and you're sitting there with your kids and your wife, you're feeling about this small right now. And Jesus takes the bread, breaks it up, little pieces. Okay, just start handing it out to people. Just, just start handing out little pieces. And you can see them in. <sighs> Fine. <laughs> and all the men. <laughs> and they all unload. And you know what happens when you moms, you know what happens when you prepare this big, incredible meal. And then, and then your stupid husband comes in and only eats a couple bites and says, I'm full. Right? How, that happens quite often. You all have leftovers, right? So every single one of these people more than likely had not only enough to feed their family, but they had leftovers. And they were, oh, no, no. And the little boy shamed them. Listen, our church is that little boy. Keep that in mind for just a moment. I'm going to come back to that idea. Right? Um, maybe, maybe the miracle here, the miracle was the presence of Jesus turned a crowd of selfish men and women into a fellowship of believers, sharers, excuse me. Maybe that was the miracle. Because I, 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 I can't help but thinking if, 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 that, if what's going to happen tomorrow? They're going to come back. Hey, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. But by turning this 5,000 some odd people into a group of sharers, it's like, it's like in, that, in that moment, God gave, Christ gave a piece of himself almost... And in fact, a lot of theologians see this as a, a Eucharistic picture. That he gave himself, pieces of himself in that act. He gave his character away. And people recognized that character and said, I want to be like that. 
I'll give this. I'll give all of it. Again, if this is true, then in the realest sense, Christ fed them on himself. Here's the kicker. These were Jewish people. If you look at a map, again, I told you that there were four recordings. All four Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000. If you were to look at a map, I don't have it on a map, but you've got the Mediterranean Sea over here, and you've got the Promised Land, and on the eastern side, you've got the, the Dead Sea and the, the Sea of Galilee above it, and you've got the Jordan River, and on the other side, the eastern side of that was called the Decapolis, Decapolis five city, or ten cities. This was Gentile territory. And if you read very, very carefully in Matthew and Mark, when they go to the, the, the feeding of the 4,000, a lot of people mistakenly believe that these are just two of the same stories. They just mixed up the numbers. Well, I thought it was four. It's actually five. No, it's not true at all. Two, it's in two radically different places. The first, the 5,000 is on the Jewish side of the, the border, and the feeding of 4,000 is on the Gentile side of the border. How do we know this? The same writer using the same, same exact ancient Greece used this word for baskets in the feeding of the 4,000. It's a radically different word. It's the name of the basket that Gentiles carried. It wasn't the Jewish basket. It was the Gentile basket. They're a little bit bigger. In fact, when you read about Paul getting lowered over the edge of the wall, and he's, what is he in? He's in a basket. This is the word right there. It's just a little bit bigger, and he kind of had to squeeze down. I think he was kind of a short guy anyway. So it's not like this big old big basket. It's one that you would just put on your back. And there were seven... Right? Christ, in all the incidences, he says, um, collect up all that's left over. What, what's, is he just an early ecologist? Like, don't litter? No, there, this was something going on. It was called the paya. It was when you had a feast, and this is what had happened. They were having a feast. When you had a feast, it was the tradition. And this was very, if you were a farmer and you harvested your field, the law said that you cannot go back over it a second time. That's for the workers. That's for the poor people in town to come through your fields and collect up what you didn't get with your big machine. Don't go through it twice. Then you're being selfish. Leave some left over for the servants, for the workers. Does that make sense? So he literally asked them, right, with tradition, and at the feeding of four or 5,000, how many people were serving? 12? Disciples? How many baskets were left over? A lot of historians believe the people, they had their incredible feast, and they said, well, hey, this is our tradition. Collect up all the extra, and we, we give it to the people who served us. It was the disciples. And then in the Gentile one, okay, seven. It wasn't that much. It was, wasn't 12. It was seven baskets. Theologians kind of go back and forth. Is this Jesus kind of, they knew about seven being, you know, the, the, the number for the Jews and whatever. So what can we do? Not much, but what can God through us do through us? A lot. But I think the bigger question is not what God is going to do through us, is but what can God do, do through a whole city? That's what I felt like God was trying to show me in this passage of the feeding of 5,000. He said, look, if you just be the little boy in this story, I'll have the city open up their baskets. But I need you to go out first. I need you to empty out your baskets, and I need everybody to see it. I know that they're not going to like you. Some of them are not going to like you at all. In fact, Scripture says that when you do good things, bad people hate you. Because why? They look horrible next to you. <laughs> Talks about... 
throwing ash on. People aren't going to like us <laughs> because it's going to reflect what they don't want to do. And we are doing it. So I think Christ is asking us, Richland Church of the Nazarene, would you be that little boy? Would you please just stand up in a very public way, offer your five loaves and your two fish? Watch what I do. Can we do anything about all of their needs? No. Can this church meet all of their needs? I don't think so. Can this city meet the needs of that little middle school? Absolutely. Two quick reminders from last week to guard our hearts. This is in John chapter 13. Jesus says, I set an example. You just washed their feet. I set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. These people that we are serving are not greater than y'all. In fact, most of society would say that they're way, way, they're the least, the very least of these. And Christ is saying, I'm your master. You are the least of these. And yet, look what I just did for you. Hit that next slide. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. I know, I know, in the back of a lot of people's minds, they're just, this is going to be, what about the government? I mean, there's just a thousand reasons that you can say, I want to keep what's mine. I, I, I need it for my family. I, I do, I, I need it for my family. And then finally, I shared with you a couple weeks ago the story of Moses. He's tending sheep for somebody, somebody else. They aren't his sheep. One of the sheep runs off. He's getting water. And he comes up to the sheep, and he finds the sheep. And he says, I didn't know that you ran away because you were thirsty. Now you must be weary. That's got to be our mindset they had a reason. We need to deeply discover what are the reasons of their hurt and their pain. Um, but even though the result right now looks incredibly ugly, like something that you just want to go, oh, Christ is saying, please, 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 please care for my sheep. Please care, care for my sheep. Bow your heads. Father, help us in this endeavor. I can't imagine anyone not asking, how much, Lord, do you want me to give? And I, I just want to challenge us, how much can we give? And Father, we, we could pray for a miracle right now. We could pray that you just swoop down and you click your fingers and all these problems go away at this Carmichael Middle School. Maybe somebody just comes and unloads $12 million on them. Uh, you know, that... that Wow, that would be amazing, Father, but I can't help but ask, what about tomorrow? Father, I get the impression that if we decide to work through this entire community, then by the process of what we're doing, we'll change eternity for a city. The city won't come back looking for something tomorrow. Father, a miracle will help them in the short run, but you like working in the long run. You like working through relationships, the relationships of this city, through our neighbors that we will live and die next to. That's what you decided to work through. And Father, we're blessed because of it. 
your word makes it so clear that not only will they be blessed, but we will be blessed. So, Father, soften our hearts. Call us to something great. Help us to make a huge difference. Through you, help us to meet all of their needs. In your name we pray. Amen. That's it. Folks, have a wonderful week. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next week.